We're going back to our series from the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at two of the letters to the churches that are found um, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, the letter to Pergamum and the letter to Thyatira as well. Our subject this morning is, is spiritual warfare, and I'm starting to wonder if maybe that's part of our issues here, that uh, we are struggling against principalities and powers that, um, in at least in my case, know more about the technology than, than I do. But uh, our scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Back in the 1980s, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was in my 20s, and there was an author named Frank Peretti, who wrote a couple of books. Maybe you've read them. This Present Darkness, I think, was the first, and following that was a sequel called Piercing the Darkness. These were works of fiction. They were kind of metaphors, I think. They were works of fiction that tried to draw attention to the fact that even though we can't see it, we live in a world that is constantly caught in a spiritual struggle. Now, if you read those books, and if you enjoyed them, 
that's okay, I did too. But even at the time when I was reading them, I had some doubts. See, the books are about spiritual warfare, so there's lots of satanic and demonic activity going on in the, the spiritual realm around the people who are the main characters, and that is represented quite graphically. But as I recall, and like I said, it's been a long time ago since I read them, so for what it's worth, as I recall, most of the time when demons were around, they were described in these kind of horrifying terms, like the way we might see them portrayed in some movies these days. I, I, I distinctly remember one description talking about bat-like wings and sulfurous breath. Now, I don't recommend this, by the way, but if you go home and you get on your computer and you do a Google image search and you type in Satan, or even demons, all of the top results for images that will come up on the internet will be very similar. I was actually tempted to use a picture here, but it's not necessary. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen them. From the horrifying, kind of realistic ones where Satan has the big ram's horns and the fiery face and, and, and pitchfork and tail and cloven hooves, you know. But here's the thing. And in fact, here's what scripture says. So it's not just the thing, it's the truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, speaking of false apostles, Paul says that such men are deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14 is the one I want to call to your attention. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like, it wouldn't be very tricky if Satan showed up looking the way that we all expect Satan to look and accosted you on the street, and right away you'd be afraid and you'd run away. He doesn't come like that. He comes well-dressed. He comes in ways that are deceiving and seducing. No bat-like wings and sulfurous breath, no horns and tails and pitchforks. At least that's not how I perceive an angel of light when that expression is used in scripture. And just take that expression apart a little bit. Satan disguises himself as an angel, angelos in Greek, a messenger. He disguises himself as a messenger of light or as it says of those false apostles in the very next verse, it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. I used to have a, a, a professor, and this was even earlier, back in the 70s, <laughs> horrors. Um, and he said, you know, if Satan were to try to infiltrate our church, he's, he's, he's not gonna walk up here looking like Alice Cooper or Ozzy Osbourne. We would laugh our heads off and chase him out of the building. That's not how Satan works. He is disguised as an angel of light and his ministers present themselves as servants of righteousness. Now that's not to say that Peretti was totally wrong. He was not. Satan is busy attacking the church and the people of God. Three weeks ago, in the letter to the church at Smyrna, we read, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So you're about to suffer something, don't be afraid of it. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
and in just a few weeks, if the Lord is willing, we will come to Revelation 12. We're gonna hit that chapter a little bit out of order. And in Revelation chapter 12, in the midst of a really, really cool Christmas story, by the way, we are told the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war. The dragon, that would be Satan. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, that would be us. That would be the church of Jesus Christ. If I can borrow the title of a popular book without encouraging you to read the book, um, Satan is alive and well and living on planet Earth. In fact, he lives where we live. Verse 13 of our text this morning, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And in Pergamum, there was good reason for that concept for those statements where Satan has his throne, where Satan dwells. One commentator wrote, frequent mention is made of the great throne-like altar to Zeus, which overlooked the city from the citadel. If you looked at the email that came to your inbox this morning, there's a picture of the Acropolis at Pergamum, that fallen down, broken temple that sat on top of the hill where Zeus had a throne-like altar. Others take the phrase in reference to the cult of Asclepios. Um, you have seen Asclepios's symbol. Um, if you've watched news or been on the internet at all, since March especially, Others think that this reference to where Satan dwells is a reference to the cult of Asclepios who was designated savior and whose symbol was a serpent wrapped around a staff. Sometimes we've seen that maybe in medical contexts and assumed it had something to do with the story of Moses raising up the serpent in the wilderness. Not so. This one is the staff of Asclepios. The other one is called a Cadesius or something like that, the one with the two snakes wrapped around, and they both go back to very, very pagan, anti-Christian Greek mythology. But any reference to a serpent would obviously remind Christians of Satan. The commentator goes on, as the traveler approached Pergamum by the ancient road from the south, the actual shape of the city hill would appear as a giant throne towering above the plain. The expression is best understood, according to this commentator, however, in connection with the prominence of Pergamum as the official cult center of emperor worship in Asia. And we have dealt with this before that in the Roman Empire, you could have any god you wanted and as many gods as you wanted as long as you had the most important God who was the emperor of Rome, the divine son of Zeus. As long as you held that the emperor was God and were willing to take a knee and say Caesar is Lord, they didn't much care what you did in your heart or with the rest of your time. And Pergamum was a center in Asia for this cult of emperor worship. And so the author of this letter, Jesus himself says, where the emperor reigns supreme and demands your worship and lordship, that's where Satan has his throne. That's where Satan lives. So Satan lived where 
the church at Pergamum lived and vice versa. It would be good for us to remember this. And it would be good for us to not take lightly the admonition of scripture, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The very very next verse goes on to say, resist him, therefore, standing firm in the faith. Um, I've often done this. I won't do it to you. I'll tell you. It's a trick question right up front. I've occasionally asked people, how many of you had to resist temptation this past week? And everybody will put up their hand. Thing is that scripture really doesn't tell us to resist temptation in so many words. What it does tell us to do is to resist the devil and to understand that those temptations that come to us come from this one who goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And whatever the metaphor that we want to use, a lion, a dragon, or an angel of light, as the author John Eldridge has written, we live in a far more dramatic, far more dangerous story than we have ever imagined. Things are not what they seem. This is a world at war. And I wonder if we fully grasp the importance and the significance of this. Some of your parents and grandparents lived through the Second World War, some of them as citizens of various countries in Europe that were under siege. And you've heard the stories, and you know that even through those years when Hitler bestrode the continent, life went on You still had to eat and drink and sleep and and have clothing. Everything went on before, but every single little activity of day-to-day living was conducted in a way because it was impossible to forget the reality. So you go out to go try to find some food, and there's this constant awareness of this occupying force of soldiers standing there with guns. There are still places in the world where it's like this. I remember talking to a friend who had gone on a missionary trip to Central America, and he said, the the one thing you definitely don't want to do is run out of any building because there will be a man with a gun standing at the door, and if you run out, they will shoot you. They will assume that you just robbed the place. And he said it was kind of hard to go into, you know, the... Central American equivalent of McDonald's, and here's a guy with a machine gun. But you live in that environment, and and you realize that every aspect of life takes on a different cast when we understand that we live in a world at war, when we have that sense that danger and even death might be imminent with just the tiniest slip. That was reality for much of Europe from 1940 to 1945, but this... Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is out to get you. This is reality now, and it is reality always for the people of God. I know where you dwell, Jesus said, where Satan's throne is. When we look at the culture around us, and at the directions it's going, when we think of the millions upon millions upon millions of unborn children who have been killed and dismembered and left in trash cans, 
We live where Satan lives. Those things don't please God. Those things please this other power who is at war and trying to devour. But do we live in the reality of that awareness? Or do we just walk around in a world thinking, well, you know, most people are really, really nice and I'll just pretend that this other stuff is not going on. Do you send your children out the door on the way to school or on the way to any activity with the knowledge that there is an adversary out there who is seeking to devour them? Do we understand that we live in a world under siege? Not that we are meant to be afraid. I want to emphasize we're not meant to be afraid. Jesus himself told the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's just the reality of life in a fallen world. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. We are not meant to fear, but we are meant to be sober-minded and watchful, to have a realistic and cautious understanding of our sworn enemies, as the Heidelberg Catechism calls them, the devil, the world, and even our own flesh. We have to have that understanding so that we do not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle. We also need to be aware that there are foes without, certainly, but there are also foes within. In verse 13 to 15, Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, but I have a few things against you. Oh, he's talking to the church. And he says, I have a few things against you, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the single word, I, I just I want to move quickly here. The single word translated here as sexual immorality, it's a variation of pornea, it encompasses all that is defined in scripture as sin of that sort. All of it. If you want a comprehensive list, go home, pull out your Bible, read Leviticus 18. We don't have time to go through all of that today, but it's there. And if you have questions about it, I'd be happy to talk. But the structure of this passage says that the error of Balaam is, is really quite parallel to the error of the Nicolaitans. And in references to the Nicolaitans that we find in the church fathers, we come to understand that this was a brand of Gnosticism. And that was an attempt at a kind of syncretism or synthesis. Take two things that, that don't belong together and just try to force them into one. Take the pagan culture of Asia Minor where Satan had his throne and ruled in so many idolatrous ways over the people from day to day and then take the Christian faith that the Apostle Jude says was once for all delivered to the saints and let's just, let's just make them one and understand that it's all a matter of interpretation and then throw in a unholy and unhealthy dollop of Jewish mysticism, mysticism and you have Gnosticism. Now, it took various forms in different places and times, but whatever it was at Pergamum and Thyatira, it leads Jesus to address his people saying, I have a few things against you. 
I suspect that's not something that any church would really want to hear. You know, if, if Jesus came in the flesh to pay us a visit on a Sunday morning and I would get quickly out of the way and he came to the front and he said, good morning, High River Church. I love you, but I have a few things against you. And that's how this letter goes to the church at Pergamum. It's very similar to a text in James 4 where we read, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Grasp that. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I feel like it should go completely without saying that enmity with God is not something for which we as individuals or which we as a church would want to strive. Quite the opposite. I think it's also, if you read the literature, possible anyway that friendship with the world was behind the attempt at syncretism. It certainly is now, and I think it was then too. I think it was just hard for people to say, no, Jesus is Lord. And if you're going to make me say Caesar is Lord, just throw me the lions. Especially when those who said Caesar is Lord would come along and say, hey, you can say Jesus is Lord. You can even believe that Jesus is Lord. It's all good. You do you. Just make sure that the you that you do also is willing to at least give a little bow to Caesar and to the other gods of the Roman Empire. And then it will all be okay. We can bring this together. We can all stay friends. And I want to be clear. Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. Absolutely yes. Love your neighbor as yourself. Second commandment that's like unto the first. Jesus also said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's often characterized as one of the hard sayings of Jesus and it is. And we don't like it. But in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Ever driven down one of those country roads? This used to happen a lot when we lived out at Burdett. In high summer, when it's 35 degrees outside and some critter has been hit by a car and it's laying there on the side of the road and it's all swollen up like a big balloon, the smell of death to death is awful. And to those who are perishing, to those who do not believe, that's what we smell like. At least that's what our message smells like. But if we compromise the message, if we try to spritz on a little friendship with the world perfume to make it more appealing, 
to cover up that smell of Christ to God. We end up with a message that cannot save, and we end up as enemies of God himself. And it's no wonder the Apostle Paul went on to write, who is sufficient for these things? The answer is none of us, not one. But Jesus gives the church at Pergamum an answer. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That sharp two-edged sword that we saw back in chapter one and that he spoke of in verse 12, that sword that the book of Hebrews says penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, that sword of the spirit which is the word of God. It's the one kind of offensive weapon that we are given as Christians in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter six, but here in Revelation two, Jesus says that he will turn it on those in the church who hold the teaching of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. It's really important that we understand this because as someone once said, I, I can't remember who, if Satan can't destroy a church from the outside, he will join it. If he can't take down a church as he attempted to take down Smyrna, casting them into prison and tribulation, sending Bishop Polycarp to the stake to be burned alive, singing hymns of praise to God, then he will just infiltrate. He will join and he will work to spread poisonous false teaching, the teaching of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans within the congregation until such teaching is just tolerated. The thing is, it doesn't stop there. It never stops there. In the letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus said, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here within your church, you have some people who hold to these false teachings. But remember what he said to the, in the letter to Thyatira? Revelation chapter two, verse 20. I have a few things against you. You have some there who holds. Sorry, I'm at the wrong one here. But I have this against you. This is Thyatira. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So in Pergamum, they just had some people in the church who believed that stuff, and they put up with it. But now in Thyatira, it's not just people in the church who believe that stuff and those who put up with it, there's actually someone there, and we don't know if Jezebel is meant to be taken literally or as a symbolic reference to that wicked queen of Israel, but we have someone in the church who is actually teaching this and seducing the servants of Christ to engage in these practices. Now to understand why this is such a big deal, we need a quick reference to 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul wrote, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And we have to get this because there are some places in the New Testament that talk about food sacrificed to idols and they say it's a matter of conscience. That if it doesn't bother your conscience and it's not destroying your brother, it's okay for you to eat. Just eat with faith and understand and give thanks to God. 
But there are other places like this one. And in, in, in Revelation 2 and here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, what am I implying? That a food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, if you are a Christian, if you believe in the living God, the idols of the nations are nothing. They're just wood and stone. And they can't hurt you. You don't need to worry about them. But, I imply that what the, pagans, what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So when someone who does believe in that idol, in that false god, in that false religion, worships in that way, their worship is offered to demons and not to God. And Paul says, I do not want you to be a participant with demons, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So there's something deeper in view in 1 Corinthians 10 and also over in Revelation chapter 2 than just those places where Paul says that eating food sacrificed to idols is a matter of conscience. Here it is not. In Revelation 2, when Jesus calls out those who adhere to the error of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans and says they eat food sacrificed to idols. He's not saying it's just a matter of conscience. He's saying these people are offering false worship and you cannot partake with them. In Revelation chapter two, eating food sacrificed to idols becomes a matter of syncretism. It becomes a matter of that friendship with the world that amounts to enmity with God. So we have to be careful. We also need to note that there is a progression here too. If you remember all the way back when we started in Ephesus, Jesus said, but I have this against you, you have left your first love. Repent therefore and do the things that you did at first or I will come and I will remove your candlestick from out of its place. So yeah, it doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> the penalty does, but you know, you, you've left your first love. Well, then we move on into Pergamum, and he's saying, I, I have this against you. There are some in your midst who hold to the false teaching of the Balaamites and of the Nicolaitans. And then we come to Thyatira, and he says, I have a few things here. You not only have some who hold to these teachings, you have some who are teaching them and seducing others to follow them. And if the Lord is willing, next week we're going to come to Sardis. And Jesus is going to speak to a church at Sardis and say, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up. And then we're going to come a little after that to Laodicea, where Jesus is saying, and I know we've, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, I know we've misinterpreted this passage, but Jesus is saying at Laodicea, here is a church that has literally shut him out. When he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he's not talking about knocking at your heart's door, wanting in so that you can be saved. He's talking to a church. And he's saying, you have completely locked me out. I don't even know what you are anymore. But again, in both of these letters, in all of these letters, we have the admonition that rings from the first century and echoes down to this day, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So this message was for them and it is for us. It is for as many as the Lord our God shall call. It is for the church of Jesus Christ in all places and at all times, everywhere that people who are called by his name proclaim the message of the gospel to a world that more often than not just does not want to hear. But we need to hear. We need this message from the Lord and from his spirit because we, like them, live where Satan lives. We, like them, dwell where Satan has his throne. But don't make too much of the throne idea. You know, the temples and all of that stuff. Sometimes, like in those Peretti books that I mentioned in the introduction, I think we get an idea that spiritual warfare is like the troops storming the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, and I suppose it is. Sometimes we might think about some pretty remarkable manifestations of evil and warfare against it. One thinks of a moonlit beach on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and a raving lunatic who came running out of the tomb screaming, my name is Legion, for we are many. Talk about where Satan had his throne. But more often than that, evil is just mundane. It's just found in the little day-to-day things that we observe and ignore or the things that we choose. In the course of our lives, we may or may never see that kind of strategic level of spiritual warfare that Jesus engaged in on that beach on Galilean shores. But having said that, the Apostle Paul, who cast out more than his share of demons in his ministry, also wrote, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity, give no foothold to the devil. So he's saying long before we come to the point where we might be possessed by a legion of unclean spirits, we're just giving little footholds to the devil in our day-to-day lives, opportunities to wreak havoc in our relationships, opportunities to lure us to sleep and to capture us in his snares. We give him a foothold, maybe like King David, you know, who just walked out on the balcony that night and thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just take a look. There's nothing wrong with looking. And ended up in a swamp of adultery and murder. Someone else said, give the devil an inch and he'll take a ruler. <laughs> it's a pun. And regarding that inch, I think we too have been concerned about where Satan has his throne. Where would that be today? It's not in Pergamum. Hollywood? Think so? Yeah? Silicon Valley? Yeah, there too. The world's great capitals? Washington, D.C., Beijing, London, even Ottawa. But all those places are far away from here. So maybe we need to worry less about Hollywood and the idolatry of Hollywood than about the way that that idolatry makes its way into our homes. And maybe we need to keep one eye on where Satan has his throne and the other eye on where Satan has his lazy boy, which might well be right next to ours, in front of that magic eye through which we come to view the world and to let our world view be shaped and fashioned, but not in the likeness of Christ. It may well be that we've given Satan a foothold already, 
and that where we have been called to fix our eyes on Jesus, we have fixed them on this world, and where we have been exhorted, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, it, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, that describes like, what? Nothing <laughs> that is presented in popular media and culture these days? But Paul says, if there's anything like that, and there is, there's the word of God and the word to whom that word points, Paul says, think about these things. Instead of focusing on what is false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, and so on. The answer for us and the answer for our world is the same as the answer given to the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira, therefore, repent. Return to the Lord, seek him while he may be found. Turn and do the works that you did at the beginning. There are promises here for those who do. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's day-to-day provision. Manna was the daily bread of Israel in the wilderness. You overcome and conquer, Jesus says, I will give you the provision that you need. I will also give you a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it, and that is eternity. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And these are the promises to those who overcome and to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And by the grace of God, we will learn more of these things as we proceed through the book of Revelation. But in the meantime, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we look to the Lord in prayer. Father, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and Lord, the will to pursue and to follow, to be obedient to the word of Christ our Savior as he calls us into this relationship with him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.